This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. On today's bonus episode, we're excited to share with you the highlights from our Black and Tech special report. Pegged to the one-year anniversary of the racial justice protests last summer, the project analyzes the commitments that big tech made in the last year, both financial and otherwise, and asks the question, have those promises resulted in any real change? For the project, Fast Company, in partnership with The Plug, surveyed 42 of the largest U.S.-based tech companies to understand the depth of their commitments. We also interviewed workers, activists, and researchers to hear their stories about what it's like to be Black in the tech industry and to understand if they think any of these commitments have made a real difference in the lives of Black tech workers, users, and citizens. The full report also includes data visualizations depicting trends in tech, including representation at the big five tech companies, race-based lawsuits, VC funding for black founders, and racist tech products. We have a link to all of it in our show notes for this episode, so please check that out. Now, to share their insights from their work on black and tech, our Fast Company senior staff editor, Catherine Swab, and Sherelle Dorsey, editor-in-chief and CEO of The Plug. Thanks, Kate. So Sherelle and I are going to take over the podcast for a few minutes to talk about all the work that went into this special report and what some of the big themes and takeaways are, starting with the catalyst for this package. So after George Floyd's murder in May 2020 and the resulting racial justice protests throughout the country and the world, dozens of CEOs and companies in the tech world put out statements condemning police violence and affirming that Black Lives Matter. Sherelle, you and your team at The Plug collected all these statements in a giant crowdsourced spreadsheet and compared all the donation pledges to Black representation at each firm. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about how that project came about and what you learned from the spreadsheet. So as you know, Catherine, it was a monumental time, not just in our country, but around the world. And it truly was a moment where we had just seen four years prior during Ferguson, when Mike Brown was killed, a very different change in attitude and outspokenness, particularly amongst big tech leaders. And so our team was watching this really play out across the timeline on Twitter of statements being made. And for us, it was such a monumental shift in behavior that we wanted to ensure that not only were we capturing the moment but we were also taking a look at, well, how do these leaders also show up in their own companies? What does this look like when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion across the board from workforce representation all the way up to who is who is represented on the actual board of a company? And so we spent about 48 hours collecting this data, cross-referencing it with company diversity, equity, inclusion reports, and also tracking the pledges so that we could look back and continue to hold companies accountable. And we got some additional help and support from tech workers 
on Twitter who sent us DMs and who also shared commitments and emails from their employer through Signal so that we could really make it a robust and um, sort of crowdsourced information guide for everyone. So I know for, for this project, which is kind of updating the original reporting that you did, looking back you know, a year later, um, more and more commitments have, have been announced since, since that kind of original rush at the very beginning. And so part of the goal here was to understand what happened uh, a year later, what did companies actually do? And most importantly, did anything change? And so a big part of this project was actually reaching out to those tech companies and asking them, what did you do? Part of that was, was, around, was around money. So in the survey that we did of 42 of the largest US-based tech companies with over a thousand employees that Fast Company covers, uh, we asked them to spell out all their financial commitments for 2020 and 2021. Some were forthcoming, some less so, but we did get kind of a general picture of the, the money that's flowing toward this problem just in the last year alone. And so the, the overarching number that we came up with from all of these companies was $3.8 billion. And that's spread across predominantly actually donations to Black-owned businesses, whether that's through venture capital funds, going to Black founders, or to Black-owned suppliers. And then, you know, those commitments are also going to, to racial justice organizations and to education initiatives as well. I think the, the question is still out of what, what all this money actually means and, and does. Absolutely. You know, Catherine, I think that the number seems very large. I think part of the challenge, and we saw this in some of the responses as well, was what does this mean from an ongoing standpoint for the long term? And so, you know, I would even love, you know, to hear from you from a general consensus from all of the sources that were interviewed, you know, what were some of the sentiments around how things changed for Black tech workers on the ground? And I mean, these were the people who were sending us messages, sending us screenshots as well about their internal experience, especially as they were watching their employers giving these statements very loudly across the timeline, but having a very different experience internally. So just, just curious what that consensus looked like from those that were interviewed for this project. Yeah, I mean, we spoke to uh, a group of researchers, of, of tech workers and activists who are really engaged with this problem. And you're going to hear from, from some of them a little bit later on this podcast. So you'll hear from them directly. But, but generally, I mean, there's really a skepticism around what does this money actually do? I mean, is this really just uh, PR? Is this all just PR? Uh, and, and does this translate into paying people fairly. I mean, there's very little transparency. And I think generally there's a feeling that there's just almost no accountability whatsoever. So, you know, some tech companies from our responses to the survey, some tech companies have clearly made some real policy changes internally, which was really interesting to see. We asked a little bit about who their DEI heads report to. And 70% of the companies that we reached out to have their DEI heads reporting to HR. And only 10% have their DEI heads reporting to the CEO, the COO, or a business head in their company, which I think says a lot uh, about kind of where 
DEI is situated within these companies and what kind of priority it's given. And of those 10%, all of those companies made that changes, those changes in 2020 or 2021. So these seem like direct structural changes in these companies based on the protests. I'm curious what, what your take is on what these kinds of policy changes, what the, what the financial commitments really mean when we're thinking about longer term change. I mean, this has only been a year. It's hard to measure real change in a year. Uh, we haven't seen any movement in terms of representation really from diversity reports. How does this start to move the needle or does this move the needle? I think it's something, Catherine. I think that in just even through the project and the reporting and the sentiments um, from sources uh, from both the Black tech worker side, as well as those who kind of sit on the side of research analysis and academia, we're all kind of, you know, looking at this from a lens of number one, all of these policy changes, all of these conversations that are being had out loud for the first time are well long overdue. I think that for it to be 2021 and your first, you're just now appointing your first Black board member, it's like, are we still in the 1800s? We're still talking about first Black X, right? And that is very disheartening, especially in a progressive industry that really prides itself on tapping talent and kind of boasts this idea of a meritocracy when, quite frankly, the data does show us that there are significant groups that are severely underrepresented, underpaid, underrecruited. And so I think that it's something. I think there were some bold moves and changes that happened. And of course, you have companies that benefit from that greatly, um, from the from the venture funds who decided to dedicate portions of their funds specifically to Black and Brown founders. We've seen some some of the most significant numbers of venture capital dollars being allocated to these groups. We see things like the ten billion dollar initiative that Goldman Sachs has to invest in Black women, and a portion of that is specifically Black women businesses. We saw the bevy of grants that were outpouring. I know within the ecosystem in which we report on from the Black tech startup scene, there were lots of founders that we've spoken with who had said, listen, this was our our most lucrative year yet in terms of getting access to capital. It actually became a bit easier to now walk into the front door. And again, it kind of felt like for many people, particularly many, many founders and Black tech workers, that they had to hurry up and get access because Next year, once the PR fodder dies, the same level of resources and commitments will change drastically. And what I also will say, Catherine, and I'm sure that you all got this as well, um, as we continue to see coverage of, yes, what happened one year later, um, especially following um, the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent conviction of, of Derek Chauvin, there is just this ongoing need for accountability And through data projects like this that continue to hold companies' feet to the fire. And so I think that what has been most important outside of the the dollar amount, because we know that culturally a shift has to happen, because even if you pay someone well to sit at the table, it doesn't mean that you are still treating folks well. Um, So that remains to be seen, especially as we see large companies who are kind of coming out and saying very blatantly, we're not going to talk about race and politics at work very boldly. We saw, we've seen that outfall of that with employees resigning. But I think that what, we, what we've what we captured here in this last year is that 
when we put data into the hands of people, it really helps around this idea of accountability. And I think that's something that is a trend and an opportunity. I think not just in the journalistic world where we live, but very broadly, um, as we saw people who worked in tech literally reach out to us and say, I'm using this data set to conduct my job search and to know which kind of company I want to work for. You know, Black founders saying, you know, for the first time, I'm actually taking a look at the ethos of the companies whose tools I use to power my, my business and really trying to make much more critical decisions around where do I, how do I vote with my dollars? And so whether the, the change for companies is genuine or not, everyone is watching. And I think that that's probably the most powerful thing we've learned in the last year is that we have to continue to collect the data and report on it and hold companies accountable. Sherelle, thank you so much for joining me to talk about all this. And a reminder to listeners that the link to Black and Tech is in the show notes, and you can also find it by going to fastcompany.com. Now back to Kate. Thanks to Catherine and Sherelle for all of their work on this critically important project. Now we're going to hear from a few of the stories that you'll find in the Black and Tech report, starting with an interview with Timnit Gebru. Timnit is an AI researcher who says she was pushed out of her role as a co-lead of the AI ethics team at Google in December 2020 after writing a paper critiquing the technology that powers Google search. She is an outspoken advocate for DEI through her nonprofit, Black and AI. We asked her about the money tech companies actually put behind the commitments they made. If they actually paid their fair share of things, which they you know, spend so much time trying to not to not to actually pay their fair share, then we, we wouldn't need their, you know, guilt, whatever, million here, million there, which is nothing for them. And so it's, it's so offensive that they even had those commitments. They did give money to Black and AI. That's one. They gave more money to Black and AI that during that time, the, the, during the commitments uh, than they did otherwise. But I was trying to convince them they should give to AGL, they should give to Data for Black Lives, they should give to a number of organizations. And if you're not even willing to invest as much as one full-time job <laughs> person for your what, uh, like you know software engineer or whatever, then how are you going to tell us that you know that you are you're investing? So um, that's that's really it. And and but the thing is that really irritates me is that you know you can't just assume oh yeah, we'll give you this money with one hand and we'll, we'll you know, like completely um, mistreat people with this other hand. So my experience is we're trying to get stuff done and they just block us. Any change I've seen is in spite of them. It's not because of them. It's in spite of them. The fact that they have all of these meaningless things that they do and meaningless things that they put out gives people the impression that they're actually trying really hard and that they're giving us some sort of a handout. And then I get the backlash because of that. I get death threats because of that. I get harassment. I get all of that because of that. So I am getting fired from Google. So I'm not getting any sort of handouts. Plus, I'm getting the backlash from all of these people who are angry that, you know, oh, yeah, we're only getting their, you know, their job spot or whatever. So that's what it's accomplishing, in my opinion. They just like would just have what would they would do is leader after leader would have meetings with us. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm not going to have a million meetings with you. Like we, we gave you this gift. You should like actually spend the time to work on, you know, things based on this gift that we gave you. And then we would ask like, okay, so what did you do based on that? The one thing I heard really was mentorship. We were going to do some mentorship. I'm like, 
did anybody ask for mentorship? In did you hear that anywhere? Nobody said anything about mentorship. And I'm just like, what your mental model is for what is wrong is wrong. Your mental model is that we need mentorship, but what you need to do is get rid of the, the barriers, the active barriers that you are putting in place. There's toxic work, hostile workplaces, the upper management people are doing all sorts of stuff. That's the issue that you need to work on, not mentoring us. The number one thing we need is psychological safety, which means don't retaliate against us for speaking about the issues. And they literally cited an email I wrote. I wrote to uh, the Brain Women and Allies list as a reason for my, uh, oh, your date, you know, my termination, basically. They, they cited it. They, were, they, were, they had the audacity to do that. If that email list did not exist, I wouldn't have written that email to that email list. But you basically tricked me into thinking that, you know, uh, there is a, this space that I can, I can actually uh, say something in. Um, you tricked me into doing all this work about nothing about us without us principles, all this stuff. And then uh, you just kind of pretended that you do it. And then you just fired me. So it's actually worse to, to, to lure people in. That's what I say. Like when you lure people in. So I gave this example of uh, someone, you know, with a KKK flag or whatever. And you're like, oh. I, I'm not going to go near there. I, I know what's hap- what that means. I'm just going to be very careful. I'm, maybe I'll move away if I can. Like, I know what that means. <laughs> I know the definition of that. Next, you might have someone with a Black Lives Matter um, sign. And then you might, you know, befriend the neighbor. You might walk inside. You might have tea or whatever. And then they strike a little later on. That's worse because your guard is down that's worse for me. So that's what I think these diversity organizations do. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Now we'll hear from Jennifer Bates. In May 2020, Jennifer started working at the new Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama. She was a key organizer and advocate behind a failed attempt to unionize the warehouse, even testifying at a Senate hearing in March. The results from the union vote are still being appealed. Jennifer starts by talking about her first week at Amazon and what happened just before Jeff Bezos pledged $10 million to Black Lives Matter organizations. I worked for Amazon for the week. I really said, no way. The first week, oh, no. I, my legs were hurting. I was limping. I'm like, this is not normal. And I said, why oh, they don't have God. elevators? That's how it started uh, going in. And that's when I really started finding out the uh, the gruesomeness mm-hmm. of the uh, facility. And when he stopped the $2 uh, essential pay, the very next week, I saw the news where, where the article that said that he uh, gave $10 million to Black Lives wow. Matter organization. Mm. And I said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I gave a smirk. I was like, really? And I said, yeah. you know, people like me will say, no, he didn't. What mm-hmm. he did was last week, he stopped the essential pay. And yeah. he, if he gave that, all he did was took all that money uh, that the company, the employees would have been getting for the next few months 
and mm-hmm. say, hey, I'm going to say that I'm giving to Black Lives Matter. You really mm-hmm. don't care about black lives because you just took from them, you know, yeah. even with people of color. And I'm noticing that. They brought more human resource people on every floor on breaks. You'll have opportunity to talk mm-hmm. to HR now. They're going to mm-hmm. be on the fir- floor during break time. They were all over the place. They were so nice. And uh, <laughs> they started giving us can- I said they brought out the cookie and candy jars. I said, okay, here comes the cookie and candy. We get free yeah. Skittles. We're getting uh, cookies. Who wants that? I need a, mm-hmm. a, I may need a chicken on my table to feed my family. They were playing music, you know, rap music, black music. Once you walk in the door, it's blasting. Now wow. they're putting up game, gaming systems on the on the workstation. I forgot mm-hmm. they said it was $1,300 each. Why would you spend money on stuff like that and you're still not giving your employees anything? This is really uh, following in the narrative of what's really going on. And then yeah. uh, you you placing your companies in black neighborhoods. Or, mm-hmm. or or low-income neighborhoods, not mm-hmm. to bring economic growth, but you're really bringing it for low-income work. The thing is, and I think has been happening for a long time, the we're looked at as the smaller voices. Yeah. And, and being the smaller mm-hmm. voice, people don't hear you. So he's in a position where he's uh, set up a little higher over, on top of a building. So he has a big voice. So it's just like I, I describe it as the Wizard of Oz. The wizards sound like a great man. You know, he's doing this and he's doing that. He's helping everybody. And there, um, the people, the, the munchkins was talking about it. Go go there and he can get, get you home. He can give you a heart. You can get courage and all this and that. But when you actually get there um, and you pull back the curtain, you really see who the wizard really is. So what mm-hmm. happens is right now, what happens with that is it's a big cover up to get in public and, and announce that you're doing all these great things because no one will ever hear the smaller voices. Yeah. And that's why I'm so happy that even, you know, even the negative media uh, attention that was, was placed on, um, uh, the election campaign that they mm-hmm. really showed the the message got out and initially before we even got the results mm-hmm. I, al- I already felt that it would go this way mm-hmm. and i was so angry and pissed it was one of those things when i was in the classroom the anti-union classroom yeah it was like you, i'm sitting there getting pissed because i hear you lying right you know i hear I see how you're manipulating young people mm-hmm. on purpose, and it hurts my heart that you would intentionally do that just mm-hmm. to have your way. And it upset me that Amazon would actually pay someone to talk you out of representation. Jeff Bezos will hire someone to talk you out of representation when they're mm-hmm. representing him. You know, but then uh, when it happened, um, I still feel like what we've done uh, was on was in purpose um, that it was supposed mm-hmm. to happen. And I think mm-hmm. even though it went the direction that it went in, uh, we uncovered uh, a plethora of uh, unfair practices in mm-hmm. uh, big corporations. And I think that's one of those things uh, the creator probably wanted to come out. And that was our, my reasoning for transferring to Amazon, mm-hmm. um, that we uncovered a lot of stuff in that 
America needs to wake up. And I think we did something that a lot of people actually wanted to do, but was afraid to do because, of course, yeah. uh, so many people have gone through it. Uh, they have been heard, but nothing's ever been done about it. Finally, we'll hear from Ifeoma Azuma, who went public with her claims of race and gender discrimination at Pinterest in June 2020. Now she is lobbying for a California bill to release workers from non-disclosure agreements. Half of these companies spend, and not half, all of them, spend more on the marketing around their bullshit DEI programs than they do on the actual programs, which I think says everything. As well, even if they were spending money that proportional to other budgets, like marketing and like comms, was actually meaningful when you still have people at the top of the companies who don't actually care about these programs, don't care about any sort of accountability, don't care about doing the very basics. And the basics to me are hiring, paying fairly and retaining uh, talent of color and particularly black people and black women. Like none of it matters. Like none, all of it is comms, all of it is marketing. Um, What I'm interested in is consequences uh, legislatively uh, from shareholders, whether in the form of resolutions or lawsuits and from workers. I think it's funny that uh, their commitment to racism is so intense that they were willing to spend more on hiring Wilmer Hale and hiring multiple partners to work on a BS internal review then they were willing to just spend in paying us fairly or even after in making us whole. I don't think you or any of the other reporters who have written about Pinterest multiple times in the last year would be writing about Pinterest at all, if not for the disclosures from me and Erica first. Uh, Francoise and her lawyer have said that they would not have filed suit without the disclosures Uh, The Rhode Island Pension Fund would not be currently suing Pinterest executives without our whistleblower disclosures. The walkout would not have been organized without me, Erica, and Francois whistleblowing. And so there is no accountability without transparency, and there is no transparency from the companies, so it has to come from individuals. And that's where all of it comes from disclosures, whether you're thinking of like Project Maven, Dragonfly, what is going on um, at Google with Timnit and Meg, none of it we would know about without an individual deciding to make a disclosure uh, at serious cost to them. And so the whistleblower, it's very hard to organize around something if you don't know what's happening. And so putting together this information and making sure it's as widely accessible as possible, I think is just a first step and it doesn't exist. And it was shocking to me when I started looking things up that it doesn't exist anywhere. So that's part of it. My, the bigger plan that I have and that I'm hoping to figure out how to work and get the funding for is, a, is around providing direct monetary relief for folks um, as it pertains to health insurance and health payments, because that's the biggest impediment. Every single person I've spoken to, it doesn't matter. I spoke to an executive, former executive at Google, who eventually left. She stayed on a full year after she wanted to leave because she's got kids. 
kids and a spouse who are on her health insurance. There are a lot of safeguards that just don't exist. And what it means is that when you don't have the safeguards for whistleblowers and for workers, that is just one more added bit of power that the companies have because they understand those dynamics. They understand what it means for someone to speak up. And so while the companies want to pretend that they're giving people choice, the rest of us who know that's not the case um, need to find ways to step in and make it not so life and death because it is. And that sounds dramatic, but it is. If you're, uh, if you're currently undergoing cancer treatment and you're aware of something that's wrong, do you whistleblow or do you stop chemo? <laughs> like, what, what kind of choice is that? If they're talking about something that we all agree is already illegal, discrimination, harassment, and assault in the workplace are already illegal. And so why should you be threatened to speak about them? It's fundamentally un-American. If we believe in speech and certain speech rights, at the very least, if you don't have right to your, a right to your job, if you don't have a right to income, you don't even have a right to health insurance, should you not have the right to your own story? And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We are taking a short break over the next few weeks, but stay tuned to this feed for some more bonus episodes and some rebroadcasts of your favorite episodes over the past four years. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen. 